Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast number 59. My name is Dan Holzman. I am your host and we have a very special podcast. We have an international juggler and his name is Johan Welton as our guest. Before we talk to Johan, let's thank our sponsors, starting with the IJA. That stands for International Jugglers Association. Don't forget their yearly festival is coming up next month in July in Springfield, Massachusetts. Great group of jugglers, great workshops, shows, so much more. It'll all be found at juggle.org. Also, you can thank me if you want by buying some of my products. I have a toy called the Ring Dama, available at ringdama.com. It's also a version called the Zing Dama, available through Zing Toys. Also, my book is available on practicing and perfecting your act, 1001 Tips. And you can find out about that by contacting me directly on my email or amazon.com. All right, enough preamble, enough brouhaha. Let's go across the pond all the way to Sweden and talk to Johan Welt. Welcome to Drop Everything Podcast, my very special guest, Mr. Johan Welton. Welcome, Johan. Thank you very much, Daniel. Now, before we started, you gave me the proper pronunciation in Swedish. Can you give me the, uh, that pronunciation again of your name? Oh, it's very soft in Swedish. It's, uh, you say you won. It's almost like a girl's name, I think. I sort of like it now that I say yeah. it in English. <laughs> yeah, you won. Yeah. Like for us, yeah, Johan, you won. it makes sense. Yeah. But uh, you don't think of Johan as a, as a Swedish name. It sounds almost Chinese in a way. Yeah. I think it's one of the most spread names, actually. It's just different variations. Like in Russia, it would be Ivan, I think. Mm. And uh, Juan. It's, I don't know. I think Johan, the way we use it in Sweden, that's probably from, from Germany. Johan is, is a little stronger, and they have two N's in the end. Yeah, in English, it would probably be just John. Yeah, yeah, you're right. And in Sweden, it's actually one of the, I think when I was born, it was the most common name of all names. And my parents didn't want me to stick out of the group too much. So, so they, and they only gave us one name each. So it's not like, I don't know. Uh, but in Sweden, we always have like normally two, three, four first names for, or middle, we call it middle names, I think. But I, I only got that one. So uh, <laughs> that's how it is. Is that a thing in Sweden that uh, your parents don't want you to stand out, that you, you, you should conform to the group? I, I don't know. I think most of my friends in Sweden have middle names as well, like from their maybe ancestry, like family names or something like that. Uh, not, not surname, but I mean mm. like some grandparents or something. But my parents were very like about community and not, you know, yeah, not make, thinking you're, you're special mm. or like... You should do a good job, of course. And, right. But, but uh, yeah. So what do they think about your juggling? Did you come from a circus or juggling family, or were you the first person oh, to juggle? Oh, nothing, really, actually. My, my dad is a teacher, and my mom is a nurse. But they, they loved it. Like They liked that I was so passionate about it and found something that I really wanted to do early in life as well. Like I started, I think I was around 12 years old. How, how did you discover juggling? Did you see it someplace? I saw, I, I'm not sure I saw juggling, actually. I, I saw um, a bunch of maybe five, six different street performers from, I think they were from England, and they came to my little hometown in Sweden, uh, and they performed street shows in a festival. It wasn't like a street festival or anything. It was more like a music, folk music kind of festival, I think, that ran annually, like every year in my, my hometown where I grew up. And it's not a big town. It's really small. Normally nothing happens there. It's really boring. One year, 
of that festival, like when the festival was running, they came up and started busking outside the venue where they held the, the music stuff. I was blown away. For me, that was a total different universe. Like, I'm sure they did some clowning, they did some fire stuff and probably juggling. Someone was miming to a recording, making some comedy around that. And, and But for me, it was like, it was the atmosphere. It was like, uh, I forgot everything. <laughs> I just... Right sat down and watched the show and I, I actually watched all of the shows that week like they they went back to back of course every day for five six days I think and I, I sat down and watched every single show mm. and it was just time stood still you know and, and it was like a time capsule or a little spaceship somehow for me like we're all there in this boring where it's normally really boring you know there's the square of the town and they are just transforming that space to something incredible like the laughters the applause everything the 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 ambience was just like yeah you, you felt some of the you felt some of the magic of show business right Oh, yeah, yeah. And I couldn't even put words on it. And I couldn't even talk with him either because I, I didn't speak English by then. Mm. So I just kept following this weird kid, I guess, and like sitting on the corner of each and every show. And I just felt like I wanted to just go with them like after the festival and just join them somehow. But it, of course, it never happened. But then how'd you start with the, uh, the juggling? How did you do? Was there any training available? It was a coincidence, I'd say, like. First of all, I wanted to, I, it, this memory of like, like the, having seen those shows, that's stayed with me. I wanted mm -hmm. to experience that again and everything, but I didn't know how. There was nothing in, in my hometown. But then we were in Stockholm, uh, which is the capital of Sweden. We went to a museum. My parents were going to see some art. And my little sister, they had like some, what do you call it? Like not kindergarten, but like some little area where they took care of the kids while the parents were. Yeah, we call that child care. Yeah, yeah, something like that in the museum. Mm -hmm. So it's like uh, they were watching the art and we were going to drop my little sister off. And then I happened to like, oh, I didn't want to see any art. So hmm. um, I stayed with my little sister and, and there was there was somebody teaching how to juggle three balls. My little sister, she was too small, I think, or she, she didn't want to try it. And then I, I was like, ah. Oh. I remember it was silly. It was like he was like, he had a red nose, like... A clown. Yeah, he wasn't like a proper clown. He just had this to, you know, as a style to be like... Sure. He was teaching juggling, but like trying to get us engaged. And I was like 12, almost 13, and I felt embarrassed. and like, ah, oh, this is silly. And he came to me instead of my little sister, and he had some some I don't know some paint or something and put it on my nose I remember <laughs> like like come on learn to juggle and and I was like ah oh, come on this is stupid I'm not gonna do this but then I started right. trying and yeah I just couldn't stop it was like I I learned I think I didn't learn proper then it was a couple of hours there maybe but I I was like all sweaty <laughs> <laughs> couldn't couldn't stop trying to get it right and uh and I forgot about this my feeling that like preteen sure of, and I'm not sure if I got some balls there or where, if I, whatever I used, but I, I couldn't stop. Like I came home to my hometown after the trip to Stockholm and, and uh, I just kept learning and juggling more and more and, and, and trying some, we didn't have, of course, this is 1993 maybe or something. So there were, I mean, no, no internet. internet. Yeah. No, yeah. I, I didn't know how to, I tried to make some variations or like 
yeah, different throws or like, could I throw maybe under my leg or behind my back or like, what could I do with this? Did you meet any other jugglers? Because for us, uh, we think of Stockholm as kind of almost a, a hotbed of jugglers with uh, Jay Gilligan and the circus school out there. So to us, it's full of jugglers. Yeah. It was really different then, at least for me, yeah. living in the countryside. There were um, no other jugglers. I think it was maybe the year after I learned to juggle three balls that I actually met another juggler and, and some fire eaters. And well, it was a group of people performing together, like in medieval festivals and stuff like that. So that was my first encounter with anyone else, except from the guys that I had seen when I got inspired at first, but, but them I never met again. So now I found somebody living not too far away from my hometown, and we, uh, they sort of took me into this group, and I became part of that for a summer or two, and, and they taught me some new tricks. I went to Stockholm a couple of times with them, and we met some other people. There, were, uh, there was a juggling store. I think it's still here, actually. And that was heaven, of course, like a toy store for juggling. And, and all of a sudden, I found, you know, all of the different stuff, like clubs and Diabolos. They had everything. And there were some videos also. You could, you know, watch others do things. That was amazing. A whole world of juggling open. And what did you think about uh, making it a profession? Was that something that pretty much right away was, was part of your dream? I never thought of it as a profession, I think, in the beginning. It was just a passion. Mm -hmm. I wanted to, it wasn't that I wanted to become a performer, I think, how stupid that might, might sound, but it, it was for me, it was like, I longed for that feeling that I had when I was watching the other guys perform in, uh, in this festival, like the street performers. So it was more like, I want to be in that bubble hmm. and I wanted to understand that universe somehow. So, so I never really thought of myself as the performer. I was more like the guy on the side watching or experiencing this. I guess along the way, I figured that if I could learn some things, I will get my entrance, what do you call it? Entrance mm -hmm. ticket to this world somehow. I actually, when I first learned to juggle, I, I didn't even think that was anything you could perform in a show. Like, like I didn't connect the dots because I didn't remember them as jugglers. I, I just remembered the comedy or more the, the feeling, the connection with the audience. That, that was what I remembered. So the juggling was more some technical thing that I just had to master or I have a manic side, I think. It, it's like I, I need to understand or I need to get it right somehow. That's what, what was my drive with juggling, I think. I think that's a pretty universal uh, feeling for jugglers. It's a bit of a puzzle. It's a bit of yeah. a, a mystery to, to solve. And, and once you experience it right in front of you, that idea of creating this sort of moving sculpture right in front of your body, for some people, it's an immediate connection, an immediate awakening of, of some sort of feeling. Mm. And uh, I think that's what you experienced. What was your early training like? Did you start to practice like a madman? Would you put in many mm. hours per day? Or well, how did you train? Yeah, I got lost. Yeah. And it's funny because once I started realizing this, I can use this to perform, to be in this bubble. I can be a juggler. Right. This is your entry ticket, like you said. Yeah. The yeah, yeah. 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 I felt like this will pass. Like I'm not super interested in, um, in juggling or circus. Actually, what I want is this feeling again with the audience. Right. The connection. So I yeah. Felt, yeah. From the beginning, I think it was more like, like you say, it's a puzzle. I got to solve it. But I think 
uh, and this has has actually kept with me over the years that it's like I'm going to be done with the juggling. I'm going to be finished with it. When once I figured it out, I'll become this other guy. Right, right, right. <laughs> so it's like a it's like a 25 plus years uh, phase I'm going through somehow, and it's and I'm starting to realize it's like well, this is my life. I have this craving or I have this manic manic side as well. So my passion or my heart, I think, is more towards comedy or clown. But I, I just got to do this thing somehow. So, so the short answer to your question is that the first five, ten years, I really got lost in the world of juggling. Like most people do, I think, eight, ten hour days. It, it wasn't a problem. It wasn't like, you know, you look yeah. at your watch and it's like, is it over? It's, <laughs> it's more like, wow, what happened? It got dark. And do you have uh, jugglers who inspired you? Did you see jugglers who were sort of mentors to you or, or inspirations? Funnily enough, not, not really, actually. And I think it's because I've always dreamt of becoming this clown or something mm, right. that I never really, you know, it's like maybe it's fear. Maybe I'm just hiding behind my balls. When I watch stuff on, like, if I go see a live show or if I watch something online or uh, buy a DVD, it's, it's like, it's more comedy, actually. I do remember, though, the first time I saw Michael Motion's uh, this the famous um, video of him with with him walking around in these different architectures and yeah the, the special the in motion with Michael Motion yeah yeah exactly and and also of course the excerpts of his act with the triangle and his experimental stuff that blew me away of course because I think that was something more than just juggling so to speak like I've I've actually not been so interested ever in watching juggling my life hasn't been about pushing boundaries for the sake of boundaries i've trained some things of course like sure. the bouncing balls and now in the process of making glitch i also happen to make this big <laughs> construction for juggling the drive for me has always been something else than the juggling so i think there are so many more ex examples in juggling that has contributed more as primary, they are jugglers. Like we have the historical ones, like classical ones through history, but also now in the age of, of internet and sharing, we have really big modern, modern names that I think is like, sometimes I can watch stuff like that. And I'm like, wow, I wish I was that kind of a juggler. You know, it's mind blowing what's happening with juggling now. It's like a, a new movement almost like what we see with snowboarding also, for instance, or different kinds of sports where we're taking a leap somehow, but I'm not that kind of guy, I think. And that's maybe because I never really had any drive to like you, you, your question did, did who did you watch and I'm like well I wasn't really watching <laughs> sure but that's fine with me that's my relation to juggling like that's well it means something different to you I mean for you it's more of a, an art form it's it's a creative process where a lot of juggling you watch once you've seen it you know once you've seen someone juggle seven balls or five clubs if you're looking for creativity, if you're looking for things to inspire you, that artistic, this is something I've never seen, like when you saw Motion with the architecture and the, the creativity, yeah. the way he approached it. Many yeah. jugglers approach it in more of a straightforward kind of way, where they, they train the, the tricks. They don't see it as a way to connect with an audience. What I'm trying to say, I think, is that I, I'm not that much of a creative jugger. Like, mm. I have been, because I have this manic side. I can, I, I, that's why I think I went into bouncy balls, because it's like the bounce balls, they, 
they have this hypnotizing, like when you're training it, I, I just get lost. Like I, mm. I forget about everything. And the patterns I've been training is, I don't know how many thousand hours I've spent on just perfecting my seven ball bounce pattern. That has nothing to do with creativity. It's just a, a monkey repeating the hmm. same thing. That's what I want to say. I don't feel like this experimental creative juggler that will go to history like a lot of other people now, modern jugglers will. And, and sometimes I feel like, oh, I wish I had that side. But what, what, what I'm trying to say, I think, is my drive or artistic drive is elsewhere. It's like in the feeling around, it's the meeting with the audience. So for me, the technical juggling, it's just the excuse. Right, it's a tool. To go on stage. Yeah, it's, it's tools. I, I juggle well. I, hmm. I, I do my tricks well. Sure. They're not going to be mind-blowing to the generation of jugglers that eat, sleep, and dream only about juggling. Because my life has been more pointed towards meeting an audience that doesn't juggle, I think. That's how I am, I guess. And then it's, of course, glitch. My new project is contradicting everything I say now because that became really experimental. But it's not mainly the juggling, I think, that is experimental. It's just the nature of the show or the project, like this thing with a pendulum, with the light bulbs that I built. They could be looked upon as something experimental. But, but I think the show in itself is more of an experimental um, nature somehow. Did you go to a university? Were you, were you college educated or you right into juggling? I started performing on the streets pretty much. Yeah. Um, after, uh, like, I think it was the same year even, or the year after I saw, I saw the, the street performers in my hometown. I, I did go to, you don't call it high school, I think, the years between when you're 15 years of age and up till 18. Yeah, we call that high school, yeah, that, that's... Uh... Oh, is it high school? 10th, yeah. 11th, and 12th grade, we would call that high school. That's what we had back then in Sweden. There, there was this one school. I did go to that one. For me, it was a crossroad. Like, I had already packed my bag to <laughs> escape from home and start my new life. And um, I was planning to run away, actually, to go to London, try to find performers like what I had seen three years earlier when I, when I saw it first. But then I got to know about the school that was 700 kilometers away from my parents, I had an urge of like, I, I need to, you know. Sure, get away. I want to start my life. I want to get away. I want to, <laughs> I had those feelings. And then that became like the civilized way of breaking away from my parents, I think, and, and start my life early. So um, I didn't talk about running away, of course, with my parents, the, the, the option of going to London. We did talk about going to this, this other town and moving there for the circus school. And they were really um, happy about it. Like they were like, yeah, you've done this for three years now and you love it. So they let me move and do that. And I think it was... Nice. So you moved away at 15 from home. You moved away at 15 to go to circus school at 15. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And wow. most of us did actually uh, that went to that school. It was just this one school in Sweden, which maybe one student per year that was from that town. But otherwise we were like from all over Sweden and we mm. moved to go to that school. And it was an amazing time. It was great because all of a sudden everything was about 
training, you know, juggling mostly, but also other circus stuff. And we had maths and history and all of that as, as well. But it was a, a lot of time went into training. The school was open in, in the evenings as well, stayed till midnight a lot of days. And it was just great. Was there a, was there a juggling trainer, like someone uh, specifically to teach juggling? Yeah, we had uh, one or two teachers, but the level wasn't very high back mm. then. So right, right. for us who had already spent a lot of hours juggling, we weren't left on, on our own. We, we were supervised, of course, but it wasn't much input back, back then, I think. Especially the first couple of years, we were just corner most of the time. Uh, but, but at least we weren't alone anymore. We were together. It was right. like two or three of us. And did you specialize in ball bouncing? Was that the kind of act you were going to put together? I spent 15 years juggling with clubs, actually. Like oh. Traditional just like behind the back, sure. <laughs> all of that, back crosses, uh, five clubs, all, all of the... Mm -hmm. I spent a lot of time with that and passing clubs as well. And then I started bouncing, what is that, 20 years ago, something like that. And then I thought, I will never perform this. This is horrible. The balls just fly everywhere. Yeah. They it's even messy. just touch. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. A, it's a, it doesn't drop well. Yeah, it explodes. <laughs> it's it a drops. very mental thing to bring on stage. And I thought like this, I love to do it, but it's recreational. I'll do it just like a hobby. And I kept it that way for quite a lot of years, actually. Which is funny because when I saw your act, how many tosses do you do? You, you keep that seven ball lift bounce for like a minute or something. Especially with a pattern like that. I like to give the visual of the pattern, like not just to make five or 10 seconds, but to actually keep it for a while because it's, it's mesmerizing somehow. Juggling is, I think, first it's like, wow, what's going on? That's the first five, 10 seconds. But then if you keep going, there's something happening. I think so when I watch juggling, at least that is like you should, your brain starts to try to figure it out. So that's why I think, I, I don't know, it's 40 seconds or something on stage. Long, yeah. I, I mean i could go on all day but it's just like <laughs> i've tried to figure out where is it that it's enough yeah. I, you've really given the image of the pattern so that's that's the reason i decided to i'll do it for a while on stage i just i don't just want to show like oh here's the trick i want to show this thing that is in my hands also you have mass you have mastery of it i mean it's, it's, it shows mastery that you're just able to to hold it mm. for so long and with such such confidence. I think my record is 30 minutes Whoa. or something. I don't even remember. <laughs> you had a record too with a, with a nine ball lift bounce. What's your record with a nine ball? I worked on a minute. I, I'm Whoa. not sure. I, I think I never got to it. This is, yeah. I mean, I did this 2000, I think, mm. is when I really pushed for it. Or 2001, if I remember right. I, I do remember I locked myself into a room. I, I literally, like a small room, of course, because when you drop, it's like hmm. mayhem. Yeah, and, yeah. and so I, I wanted this little space to save time and just stood there, had some good music in my earphones and uh, spent hours only on seven balls and nine balls. I think I have a recording of, I don't know, 30, 40 seconds. I, I think I came closer to a minute, but I never made it. Like, I, I think I was up to 50 seconds or something. And then uh, I had this wrist accident. I decided, okay, what? I think it was not only that I was injured. I think it was more like, what do I want to do with my life? Well, let's, let's talk about that a bit because I think for jugglers, we're always worried about you know our hands and our wrists. And so you had a pretty serious accident. How did you injure your wrist, and what was the the result? Uh, I've had two. Uh, broken wrists actually and and five operations wow so it's it's been quite a big part of my well career i was gonna say but actually yeah all of my life 
course. And the first one, it happened during training. I have a like a platform that I created for the act that I call Bounce. So I have a, a platform or a table and I have a little chair. Yeah, I've seen that. And yeah. It's a beautiful routine. Yeah. I was on top of that. And the idea was like I was experimenting how to I had a couple of chairs that I wanted to put like to, to build a stack with. I had an idea of a of a comedy roller bola routine that I really wanted to do because it was like it, it was also this multiplying bottles. Have you seen the, the magic routine? Sure. The idea was I was going to do the roller bola and then out of the cylinder kept coming bottles. I was going to build a stack of layers and layers of, of bottles. Hmm. Right, right. And the cylinder in the, in, in the end. So it was like a growing situation where the, the finale by itself sort of just got more and more challenging and then I would end up there. So it was doing training on the chair with the, with the first stack, not like a, a lot of layers, luckily, but uh, I corrected the, the lucky doing the rollerballer, you know, you, you go from side to side and, yeah. and I, I went too far and the cylinder oh. fell off the chair because it's, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah. I hate the rollerballer. I, I, oh, I hate it too. It's horrible. The rollerballer is terrible because <laughs> it slides out and the way, you, when you fall, it's like an immediate, wow. next thing you know, you're on the ground. Just like, what happens? Yeah. Yeah. That's what happened. I knocked everything over and I fell to the concrete floor in my, oh. in my studio and I was knocked out and I was alone. I woke up, I don't know how long after, but I woke up and I, I looked at the distribution of my props and it was like all over the room. Like the chair was in one corner and the, the rollerballer or the, the board was somewhere and the cylinder, everything was like spread out. So, and I was like, what happened? This must have been some heavy, for like, and I stood up and I was dizzy and I noticed I had hit my head and I felt bruised everywhere. And then I saw my, I, I looked down on my arm and it looked so bad because oh. it had swollen already. And it was where the wrist was broken. Uh, the bone had gone like parallel to itself somehow. Like it was like it had slid in on top of so my hand. It looked like my hand oh. was sitting. Right, right on the back of my arm, basically. And uh, it was so swollen around and I, and I fainted again, like I passed out just from watching, like seeing that. Yeah. And I woke up again and I was like uh, screaming and fainted again. And I called my chiropractor, I remember. That's the only thing in my foggy mind, like I, I need to talk with, because I really trusted him. <laughs> and I called him and I it's like, I have dislocated my, my hand can you help me what wow. am i going to do and he was like well no you you haven't dislocated your hand you've broken your wrist that's what you've done and uh, you can try and pull it in, oh. in place right right uh, right and i put down my phone and i was going to try and pull it but uh, of course it was it didn't work and it was too painful so i fainted again and and I woke up, then he was there. He came to pick me up and he drove me to the hospital, actually. Yeah, it was horrible. It was really bad. And, and um, unfortunately, they did, they did a bad job as well. Um, uh, right, repairing so he, it, yeah. It healed uh, for a year. I think I had a 30-degree angle in the where the bone was broken, so it wasn't straight. Lots of inflammations and problems, but I found a doctor that could help me like after a year of 
what what shall I do? And he, so he, and that's the reason for the multiple surgeries. Like he rebuilt my wrist actually over a couple of years. I mean, do you think at a time that, that juggling wasn't a career that you couldn't do it, you couldn't pursue it because of your wrist or did you always feel you'd fight through it no matter what? When it happened, I was sure life was over. Like mm. it was so tough. And that's the first thing I said in the hospital as well. I tried to explain yeah, I'm a juggler. how, how yes, how important it is for me. And I was scared, And but I tried to speak with the doctors in the hospital and I said, I can go anywhere. Like I, I would spend money to get to the right, to people who know, is yeah, there a specialist, specialist somewhere? Yeah. yeah, but at least there, they were too prestigious or what, how do you call it? Like they were like, no, we can fix this. Yeah, they, were, they, were, they felt they, they, they knew more and that they yes. could do a good job. Yeah. And for you to want to go somewhere else was almost maybe insulting to them or something. Exactly. And I, I didn't manage to present it well mm. enough in my state. Like it, it was just, they, I couldn't get out of there. Well, plus you're young. I mean, what are you, about 19 or 20 at this point? Or? Yeah, I was like 20, probably close to 20, 25 then, I mm, think. Okay. Or something. Right, right, right. But, uh, but still, and I was in shock. And but Yeah. So they did it and they did it bad. So um, that was uh, unfortunate, I think. It should have been... Um, yeah, they should have had a specialist to begin with. There was no surgery. They put it in place and put it in plaster. Right. So the other doctor I saw a couple of years later, he, he opened it up and cut the bone again and redid it with metal and got it to work better. But in Sweden, at least you have the, the government pays for your care. So it didn't cost you hundreds of thousands. Of, in America, that would cost you hundreds of thousands of dollars to... I mean, I, I can't complain. Like I, in a lot of places of the, in the world, yeah. I could not have even afforded it. Maybe I don't know. Here, I actually got the care, and then, well, we had to re redo it, unfortunately. Sure. But but still, yeah, I think I paid like what ten ten euros, ten dollar for the first visit. <laughs> and, and how is your wrist today? What's the what's the result? Do you have uh, pain? You is it is it stiff? Yeah, it's on and off. It's like mm. it's it's pretty good. It's, it's more like the back bending, like to do push-ups and stuff like that. I prefer to do with with a straight wrist, and I don't push my training so much since the operations. I, I do more like I take care of my wrist. Sure. I don't think I could stand like eight hours straight anymore. I, I'm not sure because that time is sort of past for me. Like um, I don't yeah. force myself, so I, I juggle when I like to, and if I stand four or five hours, that's a lot for me. So uh, luckily my drive to juggle is sort of in phase with, I think, what my wrist could take. And how'd you start your professional career? I mean, what, what kind of early gigs were you always? Street performing. Street performing. Yeah, I was in a group in the beginning, but then as soon as I sort of figure out like how to do a solo show on the streets, I started doing that and learning. So, so that was great. Was that your local town? Or did you travel around to hit different street areas or? Mostly in, in Sweden, Stockholm. No, no, no. I, I left Sweden pretty early, actually. I think the first time I was in London was when I was 14. Mm -hmm. And I went hitchhiking to... Um, actually, the, the biggest hitchhike I did when I was young was, was to hitchhike with a, with a cargo vessel. What do you call it? Like a big ship a or like containers. No, no, no. I went to the Netherlands with a ship <laughs> Oh, <laughs> for free. Uh, I see. On I was, a, cargo, a cargo vessel. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, yeah. At 14. Yeah, or 15, 16, right, maybe. Right, right. But, but, but <laughs> it was a big adventure. It's like I, I was down in the harbor. I saw the ships and I was like, I should just ask and see. And they're like, I was, where, where do you go to? Can I come with you? Hmm. I want to go in somewhere in Europe and, and right, see the I want to perform. Yeah. Yeah. 
And they're like, yeah, sure, you can work on the ship and it takes a week, get you to the Netherlands and you can go to Amsterdam. So I did that. And then so I spent a lot of time in Amsterdam and also London. I was in Paris a little bit. I was watching the others perform and learning from them and started performing myself as well. So that's that's like how I started performing. Right, but then you developed an act that took you to theaters and circuses. When did you start in circuses? Because you did some circus festivals as well. That was pretty late, actually. And I think the first festival was uh, this one, the one in Paris, Cirque du Demain. Mm -hmm. Now, wait, let me ask you about the Cirque du Demain. Is that an age thing or is that the, how long you've had your act? Is it like for young performers or just, or just new acts? I was too old, I think. The French name means... Circus of Tomorrow, right? Exactly, Circus of yeah. Tomorrow. I mean, that's marketing. It sounds great, but I, I don't even know what it's supposed to mean. If it's supposed to mean like the next generation of how to perform or if it's just the next generation age-wise, uh, yeah. I'm not sure. But they do have some age limit, I think. Like it's, I mean, obviously most of them are, like most of the performers performing in Secret of the Man is 20-something, I guess. Sure. I was 31, I think. Oh, okay. So there was no age limit Per, per se. Yeah, it's it's. I think they have like an age limit, maybe right. that they do exceptions. And it was an agency calling me for the festival, actually, like asking job, me if yeah. I could. For I thought it was a normal job. So it wasn't only like till a month or two before the festival that I realized what I had said yes to. <laughs> okay. And it was horrible because I didn't feel comfortable at all. Like I, oh. I hadn't worked much in the format of the circus, like nine minutes or whatever, like a short. Mm -hmm. And that's even long for circus, I think. I remember I was like, what do you say? Like I was talking myself to get nine or 10 minutes instead of. Yeah, because normally it's like six or seven minutes you think would be a, a circus act. Exactly. Yeah. And, I, and it freaked me out. Because it was like, how am I going to get to know the audience? And how am I going to... Because I didn't know the format. I, yeah. I had most of the time just, you know, made my 45-minute show in the streets and so on. And also, the, I mean, the theater work that I had done with the solo shows in, in the theater also. So now all of a sudden I should try to squeeze myself into those few minutes and, and do something. So it freaked me out. And especially when I learned what kind of gig it was like like all of us oh all the it's important it's prestigious everyone yeah. is going to be there you know all the people of the circus world and la 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 so it was a lot of pressure and i didn't feel ready at all i'm still actually sort of embarrassed about oh. I, I i still haven't watched the video from it like i oh did you did you do a bad did you have some drops and stuff and yeah yeah, yeah. i had uh. a i had a it was the first time I worked in a tent of that size. And now I learned, like now I know how to work because now I've done a lot of tents also. But then the problem was that the surface of my platform was like slippery in there. Mm, like humidity. Yeah, exactly. And I didn't know why. I, 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 maybe I'm stupid, but it took me a couple of years to figure out that, oh, it's humidity and I need to work. Like, how do I solve that like how do i get get the grip that i need uh, and so on but, but but then was the first that was like the cold shower of like hmm. what's I'm, I'm on stage it's all important and uh, i yeah. don't know what's going on the balls it fly is... everywhere like <laughs> i can imagine that that sounds yeah i don't know how bad it was but i, I it's not one of the gigs i think back to and feel warmth it's but you but you did other festivals in fact you won a, a bronze medal 
You did a circus festival in China. Was that a good experience? Uh, it was all right. It wasn't like I like it because it was exotic, as in I was exotic. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I was the right, right, right. Because you're also you're blonde haired and and you're are are you tall? How tall are you, Johan? Are you a tall fella? No, I'm not. I'm I I blend in. Most of the Chinese you. are taller than me. I think. Oh, okay. But they like the blonde hair. They like that. Yeah, it's. I think it's it's that, but it's also um, it's also the style. I think that you know I I try to talk with the audience, even though it's a short act. I try to run out into the audience and sit down, steal uh, some popcorn if I can, just break the format of I am the performer. You should be watching me. Like like I try to get out of that box because I don't it feels limiting somehow so I think that's also exotic uh, in the tradition of Chinese circus it's maybe more European or yeah it's it's Chinese is more technical I would say I would describe your style as playful and I don't think the Chinese would you ever describe their circus style as playful mm, at least yeah from tradition and tradition there is very strong what we know from Chinese circus is very very technical and very advanced. It's not maybe, maybe you don't think about playful, like the first word that pops into your mind when you think about Chinese circus. No, but when I watch you, you have like a light style, you have a kind of a fun. Yeah. There, there's a fun to it, you know? Yeah. But of course, you're also drawn to these longer sort of artistic shows. We are always sort of drawn to more of a theatrical presentation because uh, you put on four or five theater length shows. Yeah. Well, they're all based on, like, I make different soups with the same <laughs> ingredients, like everybody in this business, I think. Yeah, we have our palette, we have our template. It's hard to come up with that entirely new skill set every time. But So what was your first show? Was it, the, was it called Bounce? Was that the first show you put together? No, and Bounce is, that is my, the Bounce, that's, yeah. that's the act, yeah, that sort of came out on necessity of, of fitting into Cirque du Demand, and then... The, the gigs came, and, and I, I work a lot with Bounce, actually, with the act, and I really enjoy it. I learned to enjoy it. I've learned the format, I think, of 10 minutes. But, uh, yeah, the other shows, uh, I mean, the first show I did was an adaptation. When I was 21, I, I sort of started getting bored of the street performing, and I, so it's, I wanted to move into a theater. Like, how can I do that? and keep the charm of what I like, I think, with street shows is that the first one rocking up for the show is the performer. And then the audience grows organically with the show. Like first a couple of people stops and- Yeah, it builds. Yeah. Yeah, it builds. I think there's beauty in that, I think. I, I like that kind of, you have different relations really with the first, the early adapters of a street show, like the, the first yeah. families or whoever stops. Yeah, they're, they're your core, you call your core Yeah, they're group. your core and they, you know them and they know you in a way that is more personal than when you're 500 heads strong in the end of the show. Right. So everybody has, yeah, there are different layers that I like and I, and I was like, how can I form, can I put this on stage somehow? That's interesting, like you said, like in the street, the performer there is there first and the yeah. audience assembles. But in the theater, yeah. the audience assembles first. They're waiting for the performer. Exactly. And, th and then you appear. What an yeah. interesting uh, change in dynamics. Yeah. Even though you sell tickets, maybe. Right. There's some, there's some pre-show. They accept your invitation in, also in the theater. 
it's so different because it's the other way around somehow. It's like they, um, I'm not going to say I am a guest in the house of the audience, but in mm -hmm. a way they are actually seated first normally. And sure. then you walk in and you take the stage as in like, yeah, street performing. It's your house. You are the first one. You, you open the door and you ask people to come in, like watch what I'm doing here. Join me. And there's also a big difference that I like to be able to experience both and learn from. And when it comes to street shows, a lot of time, the audience that doesn't even know they will become your audience. The people passing by and maybe they realize something is going on and they stop for a while to check out if it's going to be worth watching. So, so I think the nature of a street show is that you have a lot of, do you call it, I don't know the English word, is it reluctant or like there's a, there's a hold back somehow? Well, the, we call it hesitant, people are hesitant. Yes, exactly. And they stand, they don't want to be associated with something they don't know yet. Like they don't want, they don't want to be publicly embarrassed. Yes. People are very afraid of embarrassment. That's a big fear. Exactly. And on the street, it starts like that. Nobody believes in you. Sure. Rather the opposite. They watch you for a while to see if you're going to make a fool out of yourself. And, yeah, and be worth their time uh, to even watch. Yeah. yeah. And then they start buying into it. Like it's a slow, that's the, what people call the crowd build, I think. You let mm -hmm. people be for 10 minutes and you prove yourself by being confident, by being funny or whatever. You're building the space, basically. Yeah, you're building rapport. Yeah. And when you know they're ready, that's when you in, invite them. And, and they don't know they're an audience at that time, I think. They, could, they can be 100 people spread out over a whole square. Now they're going to buy then you can address them and, and ask them to come forward. And all of a sudden you have this audience. And what happens then is that they're pretty easily pleased a lot of times. They have expected nothing or even below nothing. They have expected you to fail. And all of a sudden you're really funny or good or whatever, and they like you. And then they just love it. As in, I think in the theater, it's the opposite somehow. You know, it'd be interesting, I think, in the theater... If you had a show where you let people in in waves, like you let the first hundred people in, they see the first <laughs> ten minutes, and That'd the, be they, great. maybe if they pay more or something, then the, the next group comes in, and the first people have been there for ten minutes already, and they are have an inside view. And that's really nice. I love that idea. The last people come in just for ten minutes. They they only pay a few bucks, so they only come in for the last ten minutes, and then that's funny. And that maybe it suits suits some people better if they feel you know they are not they don't have the patience. They can get a cheap ticket and. Or maybe the important people walk in last, like the VIPs, yeah, exactly. they only come in for the very last, you know. The clever ones, they're like, oh, well, we get it, you know, we want yeah, yeah, yeah. it's, it's <laughs> we, We've seen this stuff before. So that's the thing I think about uh, with juggling, and one reason I was interested in talking with you, is everyone has a different approach, and your approach seems very theatrical, very thought out. Like, what are, what are your philosophies on, on juggling as a performance? Do you have any kind of overriding type of theme you try to present, or, or philosophy you try to present with your juggling? The word schizophrenic came into yeah. my mind. I don't know why, but I think I, think I was going to say I have worked in so many different, like a lot of us, I think. Like you, you, we try to find where do we fit. Sure. What is the role of the juggler? So, so I've, I'm working in circuses. I did a lot of street shows. I worked in theaters, not only with my own theater productions, but also in other people's theater shows. As a juggler, almost always with the something more maybe but sometimes also as an actor so it's like it's like for me my job is different it depends on where i am 
and sometimes I feel the challenge for me, I mean, the dream for me would be to go into a very traditional classical circus and do what the, that audience doesn't expect. I think that's where I am more and more now when I'm, you know, I'm not 21 anymore, I'm 38. So I'm, I'm starting to feel like, let's break the rules of... I mean, I've always tried to challenge myself. I've always right. tried new types of works and so on. But I've also been uh, quite afraid, I think, to be the odd, odd one out. Even though if I find myself in a gig like in China, I am the odd one out. And it's a good thing. That's a nice feeling. You know, then you're lucky. But there's always this risk of being, you know, like the one that people don't get or yes. that the connection doesn't happen. The older I get, the more I'm feeling like, Ah, I want to do the forbidden, you know, yeah. I want to, I, I want to break out of the, like corporate gigs is a good example. I've done a lot of them over uh, all of the years, but lately I've started breaking my, it's like, do you call it self-censoring or? Well, I think, yeah, the idea is that, especially in a corporate, you, you don't want to stand out. You want to please them. You exactly. Don't want to, you're not there to challenge them. You're there to ex accept the check. Because the client normally, like the one who's booking it, is all also really cautious and yes, I would say scared. Like they they're scared because they don't want to lose the customer. Yeah, the booker's job is at stake as well. So yeah, they pay a lot and whatever, yeah. and they are used to demanding like blah blah blah. Lately, I've started allowing myself to go where I think I can't, and it's been better. Hmm. It's been freeing and like the last two or three years, the response is better too. In gigs where I before, like 10 years ago, what I would have found myself struggling to win the audience because they are bored or it's a conference, it's late in the day and they want to go home. The light is crap. Yeah. Some corporate gigs is just like not <laughs> what you dream of. The strikes are against you to begin with. Yeah. You yeah. got to win them over. And like the, the distance, like, yeah, they keep you far away. And... Exactly. And what, what has started to happen now, I have realized I don't need to, even though the booker or so on, all those people, they are not the performer. They are not the artist. They don't know this craft. So I, I accept that they have fear or they feel cautious about how it's presented and so on. But I realize I am the artist and I have knowledge. I have the experience. So what I've started to do is to start a show by telling how stupid I feel or how I feel I'm not going to make a good show today. And then I can riff on that and I improvise around real things. And I still do my show, like I still do my tricks and everything like I used to. But I, I started being real. That's exactly the word I was going to use, it, it, real. That's what it sounds like. You're, you're trying to be authentic. Exactly. I still long for this bubble that a performance can create together with an audience. I, I don't want to be realistic or like, you know, like uh, natural. I don't even know the English word, but like, like I, I still want to create this dream feeling kind of like, I still want to be blown away together with an audience with what's happening in the room together right now, if it's juggling or comedy or whatever. But I realize we need this, the feeling of we don't know what's coming. We don't know if I'm going to be blown away as being in an audience. I don't want to have the answers. And I think to let go a little bit more, to not 
think ahead like oh there's this corporate gig and they probably want it like this and they then it's dead already for me so i think there was a change when i started getting out of that box and doing the less expected somehow still performing all the tricks and juggling and all sure. that and the jokes come as well probably most of the time but it's nice to address what's real at the moment and most of the time before a show i feel maybe not <laughs> but something <laughs> something close to that like like anxiety or sure insecurity yeah or maybe sometimes i feel like yeah this is going to be great and then it's like sh but should i feel like that already i don't i don't know and then but i can riff on whatever is going on and that i think people can relate to they also have thoughts all of the people sitting in the audience they have their lives did they forget to pay the parking outside and little thoughts nagging and or it could be whatever and that's where we start i think well it's, it's an interesting situation where you're trying to you know convey something to the audience you want to do a professional job but if you sort of try to do a professional job in the way you think they expect it, you become kind of this phony performer that's just delivering the expected. This is my corporate behavior. This is how I act in this situation. Yeah. And it, it's not, it becomes unreal. Like you say, it's not, it's not realistic. It's just like, this is what they're expecting. Yeah. And when you give people what they're expecting, that's not art, right? That's just, that, that's commerce. Exactly. And I think, I think, there are two things with that. The one thing you say, if it's a commercial show or if it's an artist, arty show, I think one thing that a lot of performers do and also the whole industry of performing do is this division, I think, is causing us a lot of unnecessary holdbacks. I think they're both the same, yeah. really. You can be artistic in a commercial situation and you can be spectacular, mind-blowing in what we would normally think is this is commercial, this is selling out or whatever. I think you can still do that and being artistic. It shouldn't be divided. That's what I see more and more now, that this is, if you can strive towards letting those, it's like two legs, I think, like letting them grow together, then we might be able to go beyond when, when art at its worst, I think, art as in like painting, music, circus, whatever, when it's, uh, I don't know if you have this, like this, it's not a saying, but like the, the attitude of like, oh, you don't understand. If you don't think it's good, you don't understand it. Yeah, yeah. It's this kind of thing around fine culture that I'm really allergic to that because it's for me, it's like, no, you didn't, then you didn't do your job. If you need a, a manual or a, like a paper afterward to explain what you meant, then your art is not working. Yeah, there's, there's an interesting thing where some performers want to challenge the audience. Like, like they're, the, you're, they're there to, get, to be understood. It's, it's I, strange... I think that's the challenge I think is great. What I mean is that if, you, if you're using the term like, oh, then you don't understand, then right, you're, right, my right. art is better than you, then yeah, you don't you're get using it. Yeah. The thing is, then you're protecting yourself. You have a shield. Right. Yeah, you're blaming the audience for not getting Ex you. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the similar thing with um, the very same thing, actually, with the commercial side that I see. And I mean, I'm talking out of my own experiences, how I mm -hmm. have over the years been like on both of these ends. When I felt offended, it's like, oh, you don't understand what I'm doing. 
So I'm, I'm not pointing out anybody else. I'm, I'm talking about the phases I have been through because I've been on both sides of this. And, and when I have been really, I think the commercial side is, it's the opposite. It's like they don't want to make things complicated or they are, or we are, I should say, then afraid of depth, like as if depth would be a problem. Uh, why complicate it when, when the audience only want to be if entertained or, you know, like why give the audience, let them just have fun. If, as if yeah. this bubble that I was talking about that blew me away when I was 12, the bubble of the world of performing, you forget time, you forget space, everything. As if that had to be a clean, nonsensical, wow, spectacular kind of world with no problems, with no conflict. Then you're on the other end of, of that, which is sort of the same thing, because you're, you're avoiding the real deal. Like you're avoiding your performance to actually touch. I think the best commercial shows I've seen has been mind-blowing because they have touched me somehow either because of the charisma of the performer, the personality, of, or what they just say something about their life, or there is something, it doesn't need to be a story. It's just this feeling. It can be a story. But, but, but I think it boils down to this general thing between fine art and entertainment where they sort of shy away from each other and have their own, like, we are better because of, or this is not the way to do it because it's too deep, or the other one is saying, like, yeah, but you're too shallow. Hmm. I'm saying, no, good art, like, good fine art is entertaining. And good entertainment has something that I will carry with me, like something that has changed with me, or ideas, or inspiration that will stay with me. It's not like fast food. Right. It has, it can have that quality. I, I'm saying like these worlds can exist together. And that, that's my strive now. Like that's why I'm thinking I want to, I want to do more of the circus gigs of the 10 minute show and try to provoke thoughts or provoke something. I, I want to grow maybe when I'm 60 or 70 years old that I can, you know, really break the format and say something <laughs> forbidden in a very traditional circus or in a theater, I can, I can hopefully win over the fine arts people in the audience that look, that maybe looked down on, on juggling because juggling is not one of the higher arts. Like in Germany, they call it Kleinkunst, small arts. Hmm. And uh, I think also that's, that's one thing that I've been thinking a lot about, like how juggling is, has, I mean, we have a lot of different, there are a lot of different angles on, on, on our history and it's over 2,000 years old. But one of the sides that has been painful for me, I have chosen juggling, well, partly out of being slightly manic, but also there is some kind of passion for it. I mean, I spent my life juggling and, and the pain that I have felt is to realize, oh, it's not always looked as the society doesn't always watch it in, in the way I watch it, like with the passion or the being, you know, blown away about it or being, it's it sometimes I have felt like, I've seen it mostly, I think, in reviews from my shows. It's not seldom that the review starts 
somehow around like the reviewer writes like normally I hate juggling, but Yuan made me and then comes the good stuff. Right, right. And that's painful to me because I realize like why? Why? Why do you have these presumptions? Like why is it better when somebody plays a guitar or sings a song? Why why are you looking at us like this? Is this really the true story of the juggler? And I think not. And I think that's what we have to, for me, I think that's what we should try and break through now as what I say, the YouTube generation of modern juggling is fantastic. But I also think we need to reclaim the role of the jester almost, but, but, but to find the modern way of that. Like the juggler used to be the one who could speak the truth and make it funny or amazing and, and juggle at the same time. And, and, and uh, he was getting away with it. I'm talking about the, the kingdoms, sure. the old... The, old, the medieval jester. Yes, exactly. So I'm not talking about like trying to copy that. I'm talking about... No, no. Like, You're trying to talk about communication, about using juggling for something more than what people assume it's going to be. I think society needs this type of... It's like an ignition or it's like a, a starter engine. It, it's this little provocateur somehow, like the, the one stirring things around. It doesn't need to be political. It doesn't need to be even verbal, I think. But, but I, I think by, I'm, and I'm not even saying that everyone is looking down on juggling, but I feel it's, it's not uncommon that juggling is like, despite he was juggling, he was actually good on <laughs> stage. And I, I, I think I, I talk about, like, maybe not just the juggler, but I, I talk about, in some countries, of course, circuses, is, is maybe fine arts, like China is, uh, I feel a little unfortunate. Like sometimes in, in the darkest moments of this, I felt like, why didn't I learn something else that was respected <laughs> more, you know? Something that was easier to... Well, you can't. I mean, we're drawn to juggling because we love juggling. There's no... Exactly, yeah. And you, you should never choose because... You can't choose your passion based on how others will accept it. We love juggling and yeah. we just have to leave it at that. I mean, because we, we discovered yeah, 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 yeah. the greatest thing... Oh, other people don't know. I mean, they just don't get it. We can feel sorry for them <laughs> that they don't get it. Yeah. But it's our role as artists to do what we can to change that, to bring them the, the beauty and the, the wonder that we experience. Yeah, it's true. Um, you know, Johan, I think, I think we have to wrap it up. We've done almost an hour and a half. And I would love just to talk with you, you know, just about philosophy and life. And there was so much stuff we didn't get to cover. I appreciate so much your time to come on the Drop Everything podcast and share your thoughts. Oh, thank you very much. Nice to speak with you, Daniel. And hopefully we can, uh, if there's enough uh, podcasts, we can, we can come up again because I just, I think I barely scratched the surface on, on you, Johan Welton, and I appreciate so much you, you taking the time to talk with me. Yeah, looking forward to, to speak more someday. Well, hopefully we'll meet soon, and I look forward to seeing what the future holds for you. I'm sure there'll be great art. I hope uh, your wrists and your physical being hold together and you can entertain us for many, many more years. Thank you. Okay. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on Drop Everything, Mr. Johan Welton. Thank you, Johan. I hope you enjoyed Drop Everything podcast number 59. A big thanks to my special guest, Mr. Johan Welton. Now let's thank our sponsors one last time, the IJA. Of course, we know that stands for the International Jugglers Association. Get ready. The big festival's coming up. 
Find out all about it at juggle.org. Don't forget about my products. I got my personal coaching, which is at braindrizzles.com. My toy, the Ring Dama, at ringdama.com. Of course, you can always reach me directly at danjuggle at gmail.com for information about my books, coaching, performing, and so much more. But until then, drop everything except when you're juggling.